Welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast, the podcast by sympathetic people for sympathetic people. Sunday afternoon. <laughs> so you want to talk about science, and you want to talk about careers in science. And I don't want to. I, like I kind of want to make a distinction between science as a career, mm-hmm. like science as a human activity sure. in the modern days, yeah. and science as a philosophical endeavor mm-hmm. that he like to or want to engage. Mm-hmm. And I just feel that. Uh, for a lot of people, these two are not properly separate. Separate, and yeah. also that you know, a lot of people they kind of want to do the science as a philosophical endeavor, and then they go into science as you know uh, career, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, this is totally different stuff." Mm. So, uh, one way I was thinking about framing this is in terms of being scientific about science. Um, But maybe I'd be getting ahead of myself because firstly, I want to ask you actually what you mean by uh, science as a philosophical endeavour. Let's see what what you mean by that and maybe then I will say what I think that means and then we'll uh, see how those Well, this time, you know, the... uh, I would say this is a methodical approach to uh, curiosity in a way Mm. that, you know... You're just randomly curious about how the world works. And then we as humanity have designed a specific way of thinking and looking into that that can, you know, help you to achieve that goal. Like to basically seeking the true, as far as it's possible, uh, the way the nature behaves or exists or something. And so that includes, you know, um, obviously, you know, some approach to what truth is, some approach to, you know, how we get to know the truth so what mm. the you know like whatever basically you no know, for people it's like experiment and repeating the experiment and then sending the experiments to other dudes so that he can repeat them which never happens and then he's like oh okay this is right you can you know tell humans about it kind mm. of so i think i think what you said initially was kind of an ideal basic idea of what's an ideal basic idea but a kind of idealized version of what science offers really what you described could have just been epistemology really you know a a method of of seeking the truth and so i think that in some sense i you know i don't disagree with that but it also is not maybe not specific enough as to to what science is itself and i think to be specific about that we probably have to look at the the history of science so you look at what branches of of epistemology science grew out of and what is unique about science in comparison to other branches of epistemology or other branches of say storytelling if anything uh, so the way I would look at it would be to say that science is an outgrowth of empiricism, uh, empiricism being an epistemology, like a, a theory of knowledge that suggests that things that come to us via our sense organs, so really things that we can observe, are, are the real things. And it's kind of held up as opposed to rationalism where rationalism bases things more on argumentation and sort of pure logic and that sort of thing. And I think the split comes in, uh, importantly, because with logic, with rational argument, uh, the, the validity of the arguments is often quite independent of the truth of the argument. And... As you know very well, uh, this sort of rationalism and devotion to logic really developed in kind of a, I mean, it obviously goes way back to the ancient Greeks and ancient India, but uh, in the period of most interest, it really was being developed by theologians who had discovered Aristotle via, you know, Middle Eastern Muslim scholars like Avicenna and, and that. And, and when Aristotle 
was discovered by the, the you know the western theologians um they got right into this you know, the school of philosophy that emerged from that was called scholasticism and anyway the point is that they had premises which they were very sure about such as god exists or the bible is the word of god or whatever and empiricism is kind of erected in opposite to that in opposition to that it's a sort of a, a statement that your premises are arbitrary to some degree so what we have to start any given chain of reasoning from is sense evidence and i think science is 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 a development of that and what maybe distinguishes science from just empiricism in the broadest possible sense is the reliance on experimentation the, the so-called scientific method or experimental method. And I've probably gone on for too long already, but in the 20th century, uh, and before that, of course, but, you know, so-called philosophers of science worked really hard on trying to work out exactly what it is that distinguishes science. And one of the, you know, one of my heroes, Karl Popper, who, who attempted to demarcate science from other things and actually gave up on that attempt eventually. But he did leave us with the so-called hypothetico-deductive method. And in some sense, I wonder if you would agree with this, that's kind of the, the, the most refined version of the so-called scientific method. We create a hypothesis, it makes predictions, we devise experimental and observational tests of that, and based on their confirmation with the predictions, we either discard or update our, our hypothesis. And it's important that it's deductive, so we can never generalize. It's not inductive. We can never generalize from a single set of results to the world at large. It only really refers to the single set of results. And the only way we can get more confidence, as you said, in those results is by repeating them often and in different laboratories and things like that and then we get statistical support for those results but we never uh, we never generalize beyond that you know statistics is the closest we can get to causation sorry that was probably more yeah. information than no, that's, required, that's, but... that's proper that's proper uh what i think is that you know nothing has done more harm to science as a human endeavor as in as you know the actual real thing mm. uh opposed to you know our philosophical you know thinking as how we should discover things then so basically nothing has done harm to the actual reality of science mm. than hypothesis driven idea that science should be hypothesis driven mm -hmm. i think that essentially you know kind of a killed the long-term research and that is like you know the just observation research, like that basically essentially just kills and killed naturalism, and that it basically brought us to the current. I, just, I wanted to say meta game, but it's not like a meta game. <laughs> to the current state of things, where uh, we you know have the short sighted approach to science, where we're like you know we need to publish it in a mm. year. You know this you need to get a grant so you need to you know specify what you expect to have and if you don't know what you're expecting to have you won't get the money so you can't study things that are unknown and so on mm -hmm. like i don't think anything else has done as much harm mm -hmm. to the actual i you know agenda of human curiosity you know developed into the scientific uh framework than that idea mm that's an interesting claim i mean i think it's i think it's probably a lot more complicated than that the actual reality in which we find ourselves i mean there's the, the economic issue yeah uh there's you know not enough funding for the sciences there are all all of these things i think it's not actually the the hypothetical deductive model itself that does any damage or that did any damage it's it's a couple of things like it's the idea that that is the only um method yeah. of science I think that's a damaging idea. And okay, I mean, you can say that. You can say that. Yeah. that and and, and yeah. Popper, Popper would not have agreed with that. And also, uh, it's the idea that that in itself is anything more than, itself, than an instrument, than a tool. Uh, you know, it's just a way, a particular way of narrowing in on particular, particular questions. Um and maybe like it was supposed mm, to help you like yeah. but now it serves as a definition of good science good science mm. generates predictions good science is a hypothesis driven mm. like no because you know like just a lot of major discoveries and particularly in the past mm. were done with 
hypothesis or yeah. hypotheses sure. were completely out there. Sure. And, and a lot of says like, you know, the actual reality is that a researcher has a hypothesis, he goes and checks, you know, the actual thing, and then he, he through the, you know, series of unfortunate events, he will discover something which mm. has nothing to do with the original hypothesis. And then when he's publishing, he's framing it as if from the very beginning he was mm. testing some other hypothesis, mm. which wasn't the case. Yeah. I think uh, and, just to make yeah. it more, more general, I can let you continue, but um, I think what is damaging is not the hypothetical deductive um, model, which I think is a very useful tool, actually. And it can be, it can be retroactively applied and, and um, you know, and it can be proactively applied. And, and when it's proactively applied, it doesn't so matter, uh, matter so much whether you actually get, you know, interesting results that confirm or disconfirm the hypothesis, but it's a way of clarifying your thinking in advance. But I think what's what's been damaging for science and what continues to be damaging for science is, in fact, the, the so-called demarcation problem, which is what the hypothetico-deductive model was codified in order to address. So I think it's basically just the idea that there is a way to clearly demarcate science from other uh, systems of knowledge acquisition, whether they be other branches of philosophy or whether we go into, you know, mythologizing and things like that. And I'm sure we're going to get there in this conversation, knowing you and me. But um, I think it's it's more the idea that science can be clearly demarcated as, a, as an entire system, as opposed to a, a small branch of knowledge, um, a small branch of epistemology, basically, which may have certain unique features like the use of experiment and the hypothetical deductive model. Um, but the idea that it's something completely separate, I think that is actually the problem, not the hypothesis. Because I think, you know, hypothesis driven science is one of the useful ways that we ex uh, investigate things. A lot yeah, of. I mean, it's good as a tool, yeah, but it's exactly. not good as an ideal. Right now, it, be it has become as an ideal. Like there is a dogma. And that dogma is that your research should be hypothesis-driven and it should generate some, you know, testable predictions. Hmm. If you don't have that, your research isn't good by kind no, of dogma. I, don't, I think that there is that element, but I don't think that's actually true because I think if you look at the, the, the omics revolution, you know, if you look at the, the advent of next-generation sequencing and, and, and all of that, you'll see all of the omics people when they write about whether it's genomics or proteomics yeah. or whatever, they will all say this is a hypothesis-free platform. So that, yeah, I think... but when you look at the actual publications, their publications will be, we have to, you know, like it's not that we decided to do the genome of this guy because it was interesting and we found a bunch of genes. It's more like a genome of Tasmanian tiger shows the dramatic expansion of whatever that, you know, like we just, we, and then when you read it, it's like, hmm, there is this big question that we can only answer if we do the genome of Tasmanian tiger and mm -hmm. we did it and we figured it out. But like, again, I think that that's more to do, uh, I mean, sorry to keep differing with you, but I guess that's our dynamic. Uh, I think that's more to do with the fact that science is a is a storytelling tradition, and I think that yeah. again, it's this demarcation issue. It's the idea that it's not; it's somehow disconnected from its ancestry in storytelling. That is the issue here. But no one wants to read. Like, who's interested in just the raw data? We want interpretation. I mean, only people who are working with the data. I mean, that's fair. That we want interpretation. Completely true. But we want to be free of the idea that in order to go and do some science, you need to have a first an explanation why exactly you're going there. Yeah, like, I think you go there because it's interesting. You're mm. going there because nobody has sequenced as many in Tiger. This is a good justification. But then, you know, and this is actually the justification that those people will have when mm. they go and out as many in Tiger. Mm. But, yeah, well, whatever. But uh, what they will. Uh, write in the paper will be a completely different story. They will they will already know the journey. They will, you know, I would even say falsify. They will falsify the story so that it seems that from the very beginning they were going to the, you know, purpose, like to the conclusions of their story. Mm. They will actually make a storytelling, not in the scientific sense. They will lie about their initial goals. 
yeah, I think there's a way of seeing it that way. I just think that that's very cynical. I'm not saying that that's not accurate to some degree. Uh, I think that, however, having the premises as part of the story, again, I think it's a storytelling arc. You know, there's a narrative arc to the publication. And in order to have that, you need an introduction in which you set the tone, in which you have the premises, in which you tell your reader what is the specific question that you are going to be uh, answering here. And I, look, I think it's it's not that I disagree with you as such. I just think it's it's considerably more complex and messy and, and every, as always, I think that. that things are considerably more complex and messy. I'm just saying that that approach, A, first, creates the idea in the non-scientist that mm. this is how science is done, mm. which is at all. And then it creates a, an immense pressure on the researchers who read those papers and they're like, hey, you know, I seem to be doing something wrong because this is not the way I can approach things. Mm. And when it comes to writing grants and when it comes to interacting with non-scientific bureaucracy, mm. which is, you know, like gives you money, mm. you have to interact with it again in this fashion. Sure. Because this is, you know, le legend that we created. This is a myth that has no substance for it. And this is a myth that we created and that everybody's saying, like, you know, basically saying, hey, you should stand up to that myth. You know, we're not giving you money unless you are having a clear understanding why you're going there mm. and some idea of what you expect to have. Like, if I know what I'm expecting to have, I'm not going to go there. Why? It's not that interesting. No, I think, I mean, I think that's a slight mis misrepresentation as well. I, I obviously completely understand what you mean. And again, I think it's to do with the fact that we have to tell a clear story. If we want someone to give us funding who is not a specialist in our area, we have to tell them a clear story that they can understand from start to finish. And using hypotheses is an important part of telling that story, as I've said. It's not that we know what we're going to discover as such. It's that we predict, well, partly in the grant um, application process, we, we name the unresolved issue that our um, research is aiming to address. So that's slightly different from saying we know how we're going to resolve this issue, but we can have a positive and null hypothesis. And as you know very well, the positive and null hypothesis, so the affirmation of the hypothesis and its negation, should be given by any scientist. They are given equal credulity, equal credence, um, prior to the investigation. So it's always, you know, what is our specific question? What's a possible result that we could have? But that possible result and its negation are always should like in Popper's model anyway, they should have equal weighting on them. Of course, they don't in practice because we come with all, you know, we're usually working in an area that we've already worked in and it, we have ideas of, of what's going to happen. And those ideas are what motivate us to do the research in the first place. So I, I do agree that there's a bit of an issue here. But again, I think it's more an issue with... Uh, well, I th yeah, I think it's an issue with, with thinking that science is different, fundamentally different, disconnected from uh, other storytelling traditions. Like, if you realise that it is part of a storytelling tradition, then of course you expect there to be premises and an introduction and, and a story which brings people in. And it, we just need to be you know, open and honest about that. This is a storytelling thing. You know, we have certain key methods which help us to get some of our biases out of the way when we investigate. That's why we have experiment, we have, you know, this so-called scientific method. But at the end of the day, don't pretend that it's something that it's not. As long as you're not pretending that it's something that it's not, I don't see why it's an issue to have a narrative arc in your grant um, applications or indeed in your papers. Because it's not the way it actually works. Because, you know, the things that you will figure out will be completely different, most likely. They're going to be completely different to what you expect. And then you will reframe yeah. your uh, you know, story mm -hmm. to, to say that from the very beginning you were expecting to have what you got, which worked. Like, but then if you compare it to your grant application, it will be completely different stories. And so, like, I just... Mm. I don't see how... <laughs> 
you know, writing a paper in the way that, and I decided to look in the Tasmanian devil genome with no understanding what I would find. And then I found this, and then I thought this, which, you know, it turned out to be wrong. And then I thought that, which turned out to be wrong. And then I did this and this and this. And then uh, I saw the pattern, and this is the pattern. I don't see how this is worse than saying. From the very beginning, I was interested in checking the phenomena A. And I did this, and I figured out that phenomena A works like that. Bingo. Like, I don't think I don't it is worse. One better than the first one. Uh, well, I, let's just rewind for a second. Uh, and we'll, we'll come, I'm not saying that this isn't an issue. But I think if you were looking for ways to uh, argue that science didn't have to be conducted that way, you could find many, many, uh, you could find a great deal of support for that. And, you, you know, you talked about members of the general public not knowing how science is done or that there's some sort of misrepresentation of how science is done. I'm pretty sure that almost nobody knows how science is done, including most scientists. And that's why there's a discipline called philosophy of science. And there is a debate as to how important it is for scientists to pay attention to the philosophy of science, to actually know what the sort of big theories of how... like the science about science, if you want, the theorizing about how science actually works. Do scientists actually need to know that? Or can they just get on with their business of investigating things? So that's, that's, that's a question. But in terms of hypothesis-free research, there are model, there are, you know, theories like uh, Imre Lakatos, a very, very famous philosopher of science um, of the, the second half of the 20th century, like one of the biggest names, one of the mighty handful of philosophers of science. <laughs> you know, he believed that the real way science uh, was conducted was in terms of research programs, which were themselves composed of lots of piecemeal hypo hypothesis testing. So he wasn't, he wasn't in opposition to Popper as such. He was saying exactly that, um, that the hypothetical deductive model and hypothesis testing was a big part of science, but that that was a piecemeal thing done within larger research programs. And of course, Popper was himself extremely sympathetic to that idea. And in fact, Lakatos even got the term research program from Popper. I mean, that doesn't necessarily matter, but given that you and I both work in evolution, it's an interesting uh, piece of history that Popper wrote this paper about evolution, uh, evolutionary biology as a metaphysical research program because he said that, well, evolution, that, that organisms evolve is trivially true. That's not a theory, it's just obvious. But that within that research program, we can have many piecemeal hypotheses testing how exactly this given organism has evolved or how this particular trait is functional or not with regard to this particular, um, you know, function, basically, or this particular purpose. And Lakatos just took that and, and ran with it. And, and, you know, now we talk about Lakatosian research programs. And I think, um, you know, final point, just to return back to omics, that this huge revolution in in the biological sciences, the omics revolution, like, you know, biology enters the age of big data and all of that, that has all been hypothesis free. And not only, not only has it, I mean, it's been research program like, so we've done a huge amount of sequencing. And then we've looked at piecemeal hypothesis testing after we gathered the data in the first place. And I think that's out in the open, frankly. I think if you read a lot of omics papers, and particularly papers that are like, you know, good reviews on proteomics or genomics or whatever it might be, you'll find people talking about this as a hypothesis-free framework. Yeah, that, that is definitely free. But at the same time, you know, yeah, I mean, that is true. However, uh, you know, the approach to, you know, the hypothesis kind of framing of science as in general, mm. it's still the way people view science in, you know, like at large, right? Mm. And so that defines the way the scientific community communicates with, uh, you know, outside community and particularly the, you know, funding community. Mm. This is, by the way, the uh, aspect of science that is like they never tell you about. Like when mm. you are in, uh, when you decide to be a scientist and you go to university, you have not a single lecture that will tell you how to 
properly right rent and how actually the whole thing functions well not only like, that you won't have a single philosophy of science lecture yeah you know yeah, i mean that <laughs> that is also true like they basically you know give you a bunch of uh you know facts yeah. a bunch of techniques and say hey now you you go Pure you go or you are you know phd like doctor of philosophy in which you're supposedly should discover the way uh you know philosophy of science works which kind of may be true and so then you go on to your phd which is you know for a lot of people it's like oh this is real science now but it's not because you you don't get your own funding you basically are now a test driving the way experimental things work so you have your own you know experimental setup and you do your experiments and you get your data and you write your paper and you know you publish your paper and it's like yay i'm a scientist now <laughs> and then you know reality happens then you realize that it's kind of here where you know the uh, linear progression ends and it's interesting that you know you only like you only understand the uh, the steps ahead only like one at a time so when you're an undergrad you only like you kind of a glimpse of what phd is but you have no idea what happens after mm -hmm. when you do your phd you're like after phd there is that mythical thing called postdoctoral <laughs> thing and i don't really understand how it works but i should get one and then you're like trying to get one and then you get one and they're like oh okay i see so after this i either have another one and then things get worse or I get a professorship, which is completely a mythical idea, and you have no idea what they do, you have no idea how mm. they work, and you have zero understanding how you get one. But it supposedly has something to do with your publications. Yeah, and, and, and your your success rate is is like you know one in a hundred or something like that. You know, people <laughs> getting from PhD to actual tenure and things. It may not be that yeah. low, but it it's pretty low. <laughs> and yes, and so. They never tell you about this. Never, never, ever. Like at no mm. point, you know. Like when you are, I don't know, when you're working in the, you know, some company, you have an idea how you can progress. You have an idea that you become a manager, that you become a top manager, that you become a CEO or something like that. Like you have some understanding. You have mm. understanding what you should do. You have an understanding that this, like, as long as you keep doing your best, you will be carried on. Science doesn't function like that at all, mm. and nobody tells you about that. First, second, like when you you know decide to become a scientist, when you're like you know ten years old and you you know you had your microscope or whatever you do, you're like I will be exploring the world, yay science! I'll be doing science and I'll be telling people the truth about how that is. This is all I gonna do. Yes, no fucking way. In the end, like seventy percent of your activity has to do with either interacting with other people in a really you know interesting way in a way that it's very close to just politicking because you want to have people in your field be on your side because they will be reviewing your papers and you don't want them to be against you because then they won't review your papers in a good way and they might be also reviewing your grants same thing and at the other time you're spending trying to get money and then only a minute amount of time you actually spend looking into things. And the further you progress, the less time you spend looking into things, the more time you spend getting funding and politicking. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> settle down. So settle down. Huh? Okay, settle down. You've had your rant. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, yes, it's very clear that there is a paucity of career studies in undergraduate science or basically none in an undergraduate science education it is part of the job of your supervisor at the honors and postgraduate level you know honors masters phd level to teach you some of that and there are you know workshops at, at good universities that, that obviously you can attend when you're at those levels and there's there's a, a woeful lack of of philosophy of science uh, training at the undergraduate level and indeed at the at the postgraduate level unless you are working with someone who has a particular interest in that or unless you carve you know unless you force your way into that area 
I mean, I don't think this is a problem that afflicts science, though, specifically. I think this is a problem that afflicts society. It's very well... I mean, my dad and I would talk about this a lot in terms of, you know, what the children should be learning at school kinds of questions. And my dad has always been really, really big on the idea that career studies, you know, like business studies type stuff, is a crucial thing that young kids are not taught and should be. And I'm always hammering on about the idea that epistemology, the way we come to know things, is a crucial tool that kids need to learn. And, I, and of course, I will say that I think that that's more important now than it's ever been. It's always been crucially important. But now, facts, like teaching people to remember facts, what a waste of time is that? You know, they can easily find facts if they know how to find them and if they know how to discern between good information and crappy information. So really what they need to learn is how to learn, but they need to learn epistemology and critical thinking skills, you know, critical thinking really being a subset of epistemology. So I think that this is a way deeper issue than something that just afflicts science. I, I, you sound a little bit personally disillusioned at the moment, and I can completely understand that. And I hear a lot of the same stuff from from my students. It's true. Like my you know, honor student that I had last year was really shocked about how much time I and other, you know, academics were spending, you know, writing grants rather than doing actual research. He was a bit horrified about that. Uh, and, and, you know, I get this from, from my other students as well. And I, and I completely agree that it's a, it's a big issue. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, measures could and should be taken to solve it by having career studies and epistemology being part of every undergraduate uh, science degree and epistemology and business studies being part of the general education more uh, you know more, more generally um, so yeah like I very much agree with all of that but I think that the, there's a there's a kind of like I'm, I'm hearing these sorts of complaints about science a lot at the moment it, because there's this kind of schism I think even within science that's forming now perhaps, or I perceive it for the different scientists that I talk to and also public scientific figures, that you've got, you know, there's been this big scientism kind of movement, the big, you know, apostles of science, science is, you know, the best thing ever, and it's nothing like any of those other traditions of storytelling, that's all superstition and crap, and even philosophy, that's all crap, that's just people sitting in their armchairs and thinking, and science, 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 you know, there's that whole movement. Um... And then there's the people who are within science or certainly outside of science who are increasingly disillusioned with science because they feel like they've been sold something in terms of, you know, certain knowledge and, and whatever else science has allegedly promised them. Uh, and, and they are starting to, in some sense, they, they feel that science is extremely hypocritical. You know, science isn't anything. Some scientists are maybe very hypocritical. There is a movement, scientism. It is to be criticised in many ways. But there's a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of what science is. And that's why I return to this, uh, you know, I should stop harping on with the technical name for it, but the demarcation problem. The idea that science is somehow very, very separate from all of the other um, ways of acquiring knowledge and also the idea that science is somehow insulated from the the noise of the world you know that science shouldn't be messy like everything else in the world is that it shouldn't be full of error like everything else in the world is that scientists shouldn't and couldn't be biased or hypocritical or egotistical or anything else like everyone else in every other you know it's just a it's, you know i'm not I'm not. I'm very interested in this, as you know. Like this is a real key area of my, you know, my my other career. You know, my philosophical work, which I'm balancing at the moment with my, you know, empirical work on on snake venoms. Uh, I'm very very interested in in how science works. But the more I've studied epistemology, in I guess in general, including you know other frameworks other than science, the less it's like the less surprised I am or the less disappointed or something I am that science is just like every other, you know, it has its, its little tricks like the scientific method. And I think that's extremely valuable. And, you know, it does enable us to discover things about the world. It's a very powerful tool, but it's just a tool. It's just it's just a kind of instrumental. Uh, it's an instrument. 
it's a kind of instrumentalist thing is what I was going to say, but you know, I <laughs> too much philosophical jargon. Um, and, and none of this surprises me. And it, you know, I've been having this debate with uh, um, another scientist for the last couple of weeks, another biologist. And, you know, we're talking about words like theory and words like, um, even words like chance. And he's very adamant that there's only one meaning of the word theory that's legitimate. And there's only in, there's only one meaning of the word chance that's legitimate and things like that. And I mean, I, I won't go into why we're talking about chance. As a, but that's just silly because meaning is use. Words don't have intrinsic meanings. And people use the word theory in lots of different ways. Not only is there a colloquial way that people use it, which is different from the way that people use it in science, people use it in science very differently. And it's just, you're just going to have to accept that, you know? You're just going to have to accept that it's like every other human endeavor. We can define our terms very precisely for the purposes of any given usage of that. Like if I use the term theory, there might be some onus on me to say, this is exactly what I mean by the term theory. But if somebody else is using it differently and they're also defining it, I can't really get all worked up about that. Um, uh-huh. And that's just, yeah, that might, maybe that's a tangent that I've just gone off on. But I just see that, it's why I said at the beginning, like being scientific about science. So actually observing science as itself a, a, a phenomenon in the world um, and just being, you know, again, science is a realist philosophy in as much as it's investigating the world and, and claiming that we're investigating something that's real and etc. and that there are patterns in it that hold all over the place. We just need to be realistic about science as well. And it's, and yeah. It, yeah, so, sorry, I'll let you, <laughs> there's more that I could say yeah. there, but I'll let you jump in. What, what I, I completely agree with all of that, and that, you know, we should be realistic about science, and that, you know, it's good to see when science becomes unscientific and so on. Mm. But kind of a, my larger point is that, I mean, we would be, I would be able to deal with that, you know, I would be able to deal with the, you know, trying to understand science, the way it works, the, you know, looking at it dispassionately and so on and so forth. What I found really hard is to, uh, you know, come in terms with the fact that this, doing this, whatever that is, scientific mm. endeavor, is only a small portion of what science is about. Mm. And excelling in that doesn't mean at all that you will exceed in your career in science. Because the you know qualities that science right now in this modern times, not in terms times of you know Charles Darwin or even Karl Popper, mm. is selecting for is high, very high competitiveness, mm. extremely high competitiveness, extremely high ability to bullshit people, <laughs> and basically being really ego driven, yeah. really ambition slash ego driven, sure. and you know like with the like. Yeah, I mean, you know, you like if you're just workaholic, it can help. But that in itself it doesn't mean anything. You can be a workaholic and you can be really good at, you know, scientific uh, thinking. But you will still suck if you can't really, you know, bullshit people into giving your money. Market yourself mm. and really kind of compete with everybody else in a really, you know, not violent, but kind of a vigorous way. Yeah, hang on. And, just, just make a really quick yeah. point. Uh, again, I don't see that as being any different to to any other human endeavor. I don't want to. I don't want to blame in some in some you know monolithic way capitalism for for that. But I mean that is that it does sound like any any sort of business really, doesn't it? And I think you know you're concerned that science is not a pure meritocracy and that it's too much like a business really. Because there's this whole salesman thing, which we find kind of icky if we're real purists, and this should only be about the truth. And I totally, yeah. I totally agree with you that I don't like all of that, but I don't really expect it to be different. So I'm not. It's kind of. Uh, it's, 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 you know, science is a unique beast. It has its stated goals. Yeah. Then it turns out to be completely like in itself about completely different things that it's stated goals the stated goals are only like occupy 20 percent of your time so you know the further you go the less time you do you know devoid give to those those goals and also it's not entirely business-like 
in business, if you find a company that really suits you, you can go within that company for as long as that company is, you know, survives. And if you're good, your prosperity will uh, necessitate the survival of your company. And eventually, you'll become ahead of that company if you're doing really, really well, if you're being, mm. you know, the exact competitive mm. guy. Science isn't like that. Hang on, in hang science, on, hang on, hang on. Science, hang on. Yes. I, I think that that's... <laughs> That's the ideal view of business and companies. But I think you could find, you know, so, so many people who were completely disillusioned because of that ideal view. And that, you know, that, that was kind of the ideal view of, of market-based um, economics in some way, what you just gave us. And it works sometimes and it doesn't work other times. And, you know, there are plenty of amazing, really senior scientists who are amazing scientists, who have original ideas and who have succeeded. And, and then there are plenty of, you know, egomaniacs and, and yeah. uh, you know, so a I, lot of those yes. I just a think that was a scientists. Sorry. Yes, go ahead. You go ahead. No, I'm just going to say one thing. I just think that was a bad example as a way of splitting apart science from business. It definitely has it's different from from you know businesses in a lot of ways and of course we have this ideal that it's not it shouldn't that's more like art you know but art is very much like business as well as we know um so i don't yeah sorry i just think that wasn't a very good um articulation I, of how different I, science well, is from business um, yeah. I really think that it is it isn't between you know it has the worst both from business and art like <laughs> You know, it's like you're doing business being a freelancer. You're constantly a freelancer. Mm. You're, you know, your contracts are minimal. Mm. They're like two, three years at best. And so you have, you know, a lot of people have postdocs of like one year. Mm. And so you are basically employed for one year. You have no idea what's going to happen next. You know, for you know, for you to find an employment, you need to spend six months or something like that. And you can't spend the, that, you know, uh, effort unless you're superhuman mm. during your sure. uh, contract because you have to pursue science 24 7 mm. you have to be workaholic and compete with people then your contract is done and then you're like oh okay i should be finding something new then you spend six six months not doing anything because you're uh, like you know working on the papers in your free time or living on your savings which aren't that big <laughs> and you know in business you'll be earning way more than that mm. and so then you know you're getting employed and then the cycle becomes you know goes again like it's it, it's the worst of both worlds of both art and business and at the same point at the same time all at the same time you have to be really self-motivated by this glorious sure. idea of scientific progress and scientific method and you have to be all kind of you know spiritually enlightened about things and you know like sure <sighs> Uh, look, it's not that I disagree. I think I've said that like eight times in this conversation already. I'd probably say it in a lot of podcasts. Um, I, I agree with with a lot of that. I don't think it's as different from a lot of people's experiences outside of science as you're as you're sort of claiming that it is. I think that we are. It's it's. But it, what you get here, and it is. This is like the arts, or it's like something like the zoo industry, or any vocational work. You know, when people are in in some job because they just uh, want to bring home a paycheck, they are less vulnerable to the kind of disillusionment that you're expressing. Uh, whereas when people get into something because it's vocational, they find you know a number of things that a their ideal their idealized vision of whatever this process was, whether it's you know playing in a band or it's painting or it's working at a zoo or it's in science, the the actual fact of it is that you spend very little time uh, doing that ideal thing that you imagined and a lot of time doing all this other crap, uh, quite literally in the zoo industry, cleaning up crap, um, that you didn't necessarily envision when you wanted to get into this. And then you also find that because it's vocational work, because a lot of people dream of being you know, a zookeeper or a, a musician for a living or a scientist, that there's a great deal of competition for not very much money. And that means that the people who dole out the money can be very exploitative because there's always someone who's willing to do your job and is probably just as qualified as you to do your job, but they'll do it for slightly less money. And that's way worse in the zoo industry 
and it is and in music i would say for the majority of people and in other art forms than it is in science you know we have a we have a special advantage we do have not much job security in the research sector that's for sure it's maybe slightly different if you decided to specialize in teaching um but we do have the advantage of because we have phds there are laws that protect us i mean i know you're in japan at the moment and i'm not so familiar with the laws there but in somewhere like australia um i earn just by virtue of the fact that i have certain qualifications to legally employ me in a job which for, for which those qualifications are a prerequisite there's a minimum amount of salary you have to pay me which is twice what I'd be earning if I were in the zoo industry, just as a base rate, you know, at, like to be a senior keeper in the zoo industry, which is backbreaking work where you're completely exploited by companies that really are all about making money. They're not about conservation. You don't get to spend much time doing the things that you love, spend a lot of time, especially if you're a, a senior keeper doing administrative crap and dealing with the management and fighting with them for the animal's welfare, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you earn half what a entry-level postdoc earns. You also didn't go to university for nearly as long as an entry-level postdoc, etc. So all I'm saying is that, yeah, there's heaps of crap that we have to put up with in science, and it could be way better, or it feels like it could be way better. You know, in the best of all possible worlds, it would be a shitload better than it is. But it's not uniquely shit. You know, it's just, you know... Yeah, I don't think, like, yeah, I mean, that is a fair point. I think, you know, a lot of, uh, basically, most of human endeavors will probably have some, you know, some specific type of shit and some shared <laughs> shit. Yes, that's, that's completely fair. It's just uh, very few of them portray themselves as something bigger than they are. You know, business, you know, it states that it will be competitive. Like, you know, I have no idea what what it is to be a lawyer, but I know that it will be, you know, a lot of work, like, you know, the workload will be tremendous and I will have to fight for, you know, clients and something. Like, mm -hmm. I know that, you know, without being learned, without even having any friends who are lawyers. But when you're talking about science, it becomes something different. It becomes something like a dream. It's like it has a dreamish quality. It's like, you know, becoming a painter. You know, when you're becoming a painter, you're leaving your dream. Yeah, like, I said it was vocational. Yeah. However, we know for the painters, we know for sure that, you know, painters don't earn much unless they are really successful and that they suffer. But they put up with that because it's a dream. But we don't know about that, for, with you know, about scientists. Like, the way science sells itself, the way it's stated, what people know about it, the image that it has, has, it, like, I would say that of most human occupations, you know, it has the least transparency about what that actually is. Like, you know you can imagine what it is to be a astronaut you know you know you know what it is to be a miner in a way that it's a lot of work right you know that you you know that it's you know hard bone breaking work you'll be you know have a, like a lot of you know exposure to dangerous chemicals maybe you will die in the mine like you know all of that you have no idea what it is to be a scientist <laughs> unless you actually freaking doing it after your phd i think uh, yeah look i, I... I can't help but think this, and I guess, you know, it's it's always, to me, in this situation, to be devil's advocate. I just think that you are speaking very much from your personal perspective. Like I said, it was vocational work, and that we all get into vocational work with some kind of ideal, and then it turns out that that's not exactly how things are. But I don't think that people who are not scientists don't understand that being a scientist or being a full-time researcher is not hard work. Uh, that's not the impression that I get from people who talk to, who, who ask me what I do and, and, you know, people who are yeah, friends like, from outside of science, they all think I work really hard. Yeah. They know that, you know, it's working really hard in like you thinking and you're solving the problems, but like the, <laughs> yeah, I mean like, you know, the whole what it is like the <laughs> the whole the whole details about what it is you know the whole things about the journey that takes you know to the professorship mm. even if like if you get one which you know as you mentioned like the chances of you getting one they're really minuscule yeah and which just 
I don't think that that's fundamentally different from rising up in some big company or yeah, whatever I, either, yeah. you know. that Very yeah. few people we, do that, and it turns out that they have to do a lot of shit that they didn't imagine they'd have to do before they started it, and they have to work their asses off, and probably way harder than the average scientist works if you're talking yeah. about getting to the top of a really big company. So I think I think this is just probably. a general, like, I, a general I rule that. about I'm, humans, frankly. Uh Yes, but then you can be just working in your office and you can be working in your office until you are 60 and then you retire. In order to do that in science, you have to play everything really, really well because most of the time, the, you know, the average scenario is like you have your postdocs until you're 40, then you're no longer employed because you are no longer qualified for grants that are you know, young researchers. You're no longer a young researcher, and you're not good enough to go for on like good enough being you know a larger thing. You're not competitive enough, and you haven't published enough, or you haven't attracted funding enough, and then you're just not employed. Mm. Uh, look, I think this is a huge problem. I, you know, I think it's a well-known problem amongst some people. In fact, there's a there's a very distinguished. Well, you know, an older researcher in my department whose office is just across the corridor from mine. And uh, he talks about this a great deal. And he's been writing about this and, and being interviewed on the radio and doing extended podcast interviews and things about the fact that we, we bring... It's this kind of this model of, of churning out PhDs who won't be employable, you know, who may not get a postdoc in the first place and then who probably won't be employable. And there's a lot of funding available for PhDs, basically. You know, universities make it pretty easy for labs or research groups of any kind to get PhDs in. Uh, and PhD is like the cheapest form of labor at the higher research level. So there, there are incentives for getting PhDs in and not many, uh, you know, things that count against it. You know, and you and I have both worked in a lab where that has been exploited to the fullest, you know cheap labor <laughs> basically um mm -hmm. and it isn't made clear in most environments to those phd students or it could even be honors and master students that the fact that they are doing this qualification which is often very beneficial again for the lab it's beneficial for the university because the university has their figures you know we we graduated X number of PhDs and they published all these papers and, you know, maybe they want a little bit of funding. It's all great for the university, but it's not very transparent to those postgraduate students that the likelihood of them having a very long career and a lucrative career in academia is pretty slim. So I definitely think that's an issue. And I think, you know, we, we, we sort of already covered that the career studies element is lacking in science education just as and i actually think it's it's an equal or bigger i think it's a bigger societal issue that you know as opposed to being an issue for the individual scientists to become disillusioned that epistemology is not like the way science works philosophy of science is not something that's taught at the undergraduate level uh, it seems to me that we're, we're in a society where science, you know, in, in, the, in our modern Western societies, science is such a big deal. And I mean, you're sort of reacting to it being elevated to a certain level or having a certain uh, reputation or whatever that it, it, it doesn't or shouldn't have. Regardless, it is a very big deal. It's very influential in lots of different ways. I think every single degree program, again, of course, I think that it should be done even prior to tertiary education. I think it should be in, in, in high school, if not primary school. But I think people need to learn about what science is and what science isn't just as, a, as an important area of knowledge for living in a scientific society, basically. And a lot of the scientismists would say something like that because they think that people need to learn how science works so that they can be extremely deferential towards you know the knowledge that science generates i think there is an important aspect there that we want to uh, you know minimize the sort of dunning kruger effect but at the same time we don't want to oversell science we want to show you know give the best available knowledge about what it is and what it isn't including a, an open and honest analysis of its history, its evolutionary history from other frameworks for knowledge acquisition, 
so that we don't have this real schism between science and, and, and other things. You know, I, I think that there's a problem. Obviously, I think that's a problem. I've said that about eight times. I seem to be saying everything eight times. It's a very auspicious number for the Chinese. So I'm, gonna, I'm concentrating on saying things eight times today. Um, I, <laughs> I, think, I think compartmentalization is kind of an issue. I think when we claim that this thing is, is very separate from everything else and you know doesn't speak well with other things but even when we do that inside ourselves like as scientists we say oh well i have my scientific mind and then i have my my you know other um you know if, if we're religious or if we we adopt other sorts of frameworks you know there are people that i greatly admire who talk about stuff like that about having their science and then having their other beliefs and they don't um come together but I think that's very illusory and I think it's potentially problematic because I think whatever you believe and whatever you, you, you feel very strongly or you intuit or whatever form of, of knowledge acquisition you are relying on in, in one area of your life is going to affect what you do in all areas of your life. And I think the only reason some people believe that they need to compartmentalize things is because they think that science is harder than it actually is. And I don't mean that in the difficulty sense. I mean that in the sense that we talk about hard sciences and soft sciences. I think that the hard sciences and science in general is not really as hard as we make it out to be. And I think that really that's a part of the problem here. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's a part of the bigger problem that, you know, not only society is, uh, doesn't quite understand what, you know, science is in actual reality. Scientists, as you, you know, yeah. said understand what science mm -hmm. is in actual reality mm -hmm. and uh, I, I would say that you know if i was into conspiracy theories i would be like this is a freaking conspiracy you know they train you as this idealistic moron and then they say hey you know how about we pay for your you for three and a half years to do some of that you know dream work and you're like yay i'm going to do that and they're like yeah okay go ahead and do that and you do that, and after that, they're like, well, try to fight for yourself. <laughs> if you fail, Off you go. too bad. We were going to pay for another young, more idealistic moron <laughs> to work for three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I think that that's, that's definitely a big problem. Uh, and you know <laughs> what like fail to understand is that our society values science so much. Mm. I mean... Science brings us a lot that we use every day, mm. you know, like I'm looking around myself and freaking every object that I look, you know, was created by, you know, one or another scientific advance, like, you know, internet, computers, electric guitar, like everything. <laughs> and when you, but when you think about the amount of money society spends on science, it's minuscule, you know, mm. like I checked it recently and U.S. spends almost half of its budget on, you know, army. Mm. And it spends only like five, three to five percent on science. So we could argue, though, that <laughs> I'm not defending that statistic at all. But there, some of that military budget is on research, um, and that the weapons that they're buying are themselves products of science in the same way that yeah. you know you just. But that doesn't excuse or or legitimise. You know, that's a huge, huge problem. And and yes, it's. It's bizarre. Yeah. I guess it's been commented on a great deal, so we probably don't need to elaborate on that. But yeah, it's 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 shocking and disturbing. Because it's kind of perceived that oh, it's just you know the problem is that we're now training a lot of PhDs. Like you know, previously we had fewer amount of PhDs and we had X amount of tenure, and the proportion was kind of you mm. know more or less you know decent, and so you had good chances in getting tenure. The problem now is just we're training a lot of PhDs because universities are greedy for money that, you know, PhDs in one or another way brings to them. Mm -hmm. and I think this is deeply wrong. I think the problem is that, hey, you know, we at, at the time that we had, you know, a decent uh, proportion between tenure and PhDs was like 50 years ago when mm -hmm. we still had like 4 billion people. Now we have seven. We have more people than that than, you know, previously, but just and less... Uh, 
people needed for labor work. Mm. What do you think they're going to do? They're obviously going to do something that, you know, involves thinking. Yeah. Science is to think for that. Yeah. So in ideal, you know, like, it just reminds me of some, you know, Soviet era science fiction where <laughs> basically pretty much everybody were scientists mm. one way or another. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense because if you have, you know, AI doing all the labor work for you, and, you know, all the bureaucracy is done by AI, mm. for the sake of argument. Banking is done by AI one or another way. What people are going to do? They're going to research and having le leisure time. And there is mm. only so much leisure you can have. So yeah. they will be just looking around. What's the best way to look around? Science. Yeah. So, like... Yeah, completely. I think, I think to, your, to your earlier point, uh, you know, science is idealized. And, I mean, education is idealized. We want better educated societies and that has been very productive and positive and we're achieving that goal you know more and more people are getting tertiary degrees and more and more people are therefore going on to tertiary post-tertiary education and then we at some point just run out of options for them that are, are appropriate like after the phd they're just in the wind and i think you're you know the, the point that you're driving at is very correct we, we've achieved these goals of having higher education and in order to capitalize on that we need to put more money into the sciences so that these people can actually use the skills that they have acquired that we have told them are the highest goals that they should aspire to like wow it's so amazing to get a phd uh, so put more money into the sciences so that there are jobs for these people and you know presumably I mean, that's the great myth of, of, I'm not saying that it's wrong because it's a myth, the great myth of, of progress in, the, in modern Western societies, presumably if we have more highly educated people in jobs where they are actually able to use the qualifications that they've got, use the skills that they've got, then progress is going to be achieved more rapidly, basically. You know, things are going to get better more quickly and better and better and better. So, yeah, I, I very strongly agree with you. On, on that particular point. But instead, we're creating, you know, more military. Mm. And it's like, you know, that kind of, you know, almost a side point that makes me wonder, why don't we have war if we're spending five, you know, like 50% of our budget? I mean, not our, but every country pretty much is doing that on war. It then, you know, feels that we're really lucky that we don't have, you know, a well, constant conflict like worldwide well one argument would be that the reason we don't have so much war is because we spend so much money on our military budgets because yeah. given that our armies are so you know well funded and our weapons are so powerful nobody really wants to get into a war so it's a deterrent it's like you know the cold war isn't it i mean it's a it's a deterrence yeah. having That's a huge exactly. arsenal mm. yeah but then you know this kind of you know it feels like this is a circular argument. It sure. feels that like this, you know, like, oh, we actually need more funding, you know, so that there is no war at all. Like, if we spend 70% of our budget on war, <laughs> then there will be yeah. no war at all, yeah. ever. Yeah, well, like, but, uh, obviously, obviously that's, that's, a, that's a difficulty, but just because an argument is circular doesn't mean it's true. You know, I think that's one of the great um the great mean, that's wrong um, you know, circular arguments are often very true and, and nature yeah. is full of feedback cycles. I mean, feedback cycles are one of the dominant forces yeah. shaping the, the evolution of the, of the planet and have been since, well, the universe, I should say. Um, the Ouroboros effect uh, okay. or the Matthew effect, you know. <laughs> um, well, those are slightly different things, but we don't need to unpack that. <laughs> but yeah, so I, look, obviously we're going to fiercely agree that it would be it would be i would prefer to live in a world where more money was spent on science and then for of course personally that would mean i was guaranteed income for the rest of my life to work on the stuff and by the way i don't just want money for science i want money for um processes of knowledge acquisition for study and all of that you know so that should include all of the the frameworks that we have for doing that kind of thing and and again I don't, and I know you don't either, but I don't view science as, you know, separate from, from even from the humanities, you know, but I view it as a, as a, as a particular branch of, of empiricism, which is a particular branch of epistemology, which is a particular branch of philosophy, 
so I would like to see more funding, obviously, for a wider range of, of stuff, including the arts. Clearly, mm -hmm. I wish there was a lot more money for people to uh, to avoid the business model of the arts, essentially. If there were a lot more state support of the arts, we'd have better art. Uh, we'd have more people uh, able to, to make a living out of arts, out of the arts. Um, and then we would avoid the, the, the you know, cutthroat business model in which, which is not meritocratic, in which it's not the best art by any, I mean, that's obviously a very problematic uh, measure, the best art, but by any measure, it's not the best art that rises to the top in the business model. It's the stuff that is most marketable. So I think, you know, we're going to fiercely agree, and I think we're going to agree with anybody in our position, uh, anybody with, you know, a post-tertiary education is probably going to agree that there should be a lot more money in, in you know, in universities, basically, um, than in the military. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's personally agree on that. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It was some point, but I forget. Yeah.